good afternoon, and maybe I should say uh, early evening. Um, welcome to Princeton Theological Seminary. My name is Carrie Day, and I serve as the Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I am elated to host a conversation on this evening concerning um, the post-election sort of aftermath. Um, I have some students I was talking to on today who sort of referred to what we're living through as the post-election blues, where we are uh, once again facing down the uncertainty, uh, really the uncertainties, plural, of this nation um, and what that means for the future, not only of the nation, but the future of our communities. And so in light of um, this sort of the post-election issues that are going on, um, Princeton Theological Seminary, and this is being sponsored, this conversation is being sponsored by the Religion and Society Department, as well as the Office for Multicultural Relations. We thought that it would be a wonderful idea to bring Dr. Glaude in, um, the author of many books, but most notably uh, right now, uh, the book Begin Again, which quickly became a New York Times bestseller, uh, for him to come in and have a conversation with us along the lines of given sort of the uncertainty and the chaos and the very deep contestation that the election results have generated, can we still begin again? Um, so with that being said, uh, uh, sort of a note on the flow of our conversation on tonight, um, we'll begin with some reflections from Dr. Glaude, followed by sort of a brief conversation between Dr. Glaude and me, and then we'll open it up to the virtual community. Please note that as Dr. Glaude is talking or as I'm conversing with Dr. Glaude, that you can feel free to submit your questions. Uh, you can go all the way down to your Zoom screen and you will see all the way to the right, a Q&A icon. If you click on that, um, you can submit your question there. And of course, I can articulate your question to Dr. Glaude as we enter into the final portion of our time together. So with that being said, I will go ahead and introduce our distinguished guest. Dr. Eddie Glaude is the James McDonald Distinguished University Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies, a program he first became involved with shaping as a doctoral candidate in religion at Princeton University. He is the former president of the American Academy of Religion. His books on religion and philosophy include An Uncommon Faith, A Pragmatic Approach to the Study of African American Religion, African-American Religion, A Very Short Introduction, and Exodus, Religion, Race, and Nation in Early 19th Century Black America, which was awarded the Modern Language Association's William Sanders Scarborough Book Prize. Glaude is also the author of two edited volumes and many influential articles about religion for academic journals. He has also written for the likes of the New York Times and Time Magazine. Of course, Glaw's most recent book that I just named, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Own, was released on this year, June the 30th. Of Baldwin, Glaude writes, Baldwin's writing does not bear witness to the glory of America. It reveals the country's sins and the illusions of innocence that blinds us to the reality of others. Baldwin's vision requires a confrontation with our history, with slavery, Jim Crow segregation, with whiteness, 
to overcome its hold on us, not to posit the greatness of America, but to establish the ground upon which to imagine the country anew. And probably I should add here that although he certainly is in academic spaces, we probably encounter him the most in our living rooms on TV. <laughs> he is a columnist for the Time Magazine and an MSNBC contributor on programs like Morning Joe and Deadline White House with Nicole Wallace. We are very excited again to have Dr. Glaude. And of course, the question that sits before us wanting to frame uh, this post-election aftermath through this wonderful book that, doc, uh, that Dr. Glaude has written, Begin Again, is uh, the question that confronts us in a moment where so many people are feeling a sense of a political inefficacy, not being able to make a difference, maybe even a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Uh, can mm -hmm. we still begin again? Dr. Glaude. Thank you so much, Dr. Day. It's a, it's a pleasure. Um, to, to have an opportunity to, to share some space with you, uh, to dialogue with you. It's, I learn something every time I sit down and have, have a chance to have a conversation with you to share in your brilliance. So I really appreciate you and every show. I wanna just say a few things um, to, set, to set the table for the conversation. It seems to me that many, of, many Americans found themselves confused at the end of the election in November. Uh, there, among some, there was this, the assumption that uh, given Trump's mendacity, that he lies every single day, given his incompetence, uh, 240,000 dead, 240,000 plus dead in terms of the COVID pandemic, and given his, given his corruption and graft over the last 40 years, that with this evidence that it would be clear that the nation would reject him because he threatened the very foundations of American democracy. And as a member of the pundit class, I found myself with my colleagues on MSNBC uh, confronting this, this standard judgment that Trump did not understand political math, that he only governed to his base and that he could not add, uh, he, by way of, because of the way he was governing, he could not add people to his coalition. He was simply narrowing his support. And what was, what was revealed on November 3rd, of course, is that more white people voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than they voted for him in 2016. That 56% of white women voted for Donald Trump according to exit polls, that we see that Donald Trump, in fact, expanded right, his electorate among disaffected white voters. And he did so by way of appeal to white grievance, uh, white fears, uh, and resentment. But he also, real, he also maintained the support of many Republicans who found him, in so many ways, uh, repulsive. And that support, in some ways, was rooted, I believe, in a kind of selfishness and greed. And this has been the sweet spot of Donald Trump's four years, white supremacy, selfishness, and greed. And so many of our fellows have been confused, wondering what do we do with this kind of division, trying to make sense of the fact that 
71 plus million Americans voted for someone who's obviously incompetent, who lies every day, and who is committed only to himself. Um, and what might drive those people? And in some ways, it sent me back to Baldwin. It sent me back to Baldwin in order to think about uh, what's at the heart of the matter. What's at the heart of the matter. And Baldwin understood that the country needed, had to, confront the lies that sustain its innocence. That the country had to, in fact, confront this ugliness that's at the core of who we take ourselves to be. As he put it in The Fire Next Time, it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence that constitutes the crime. Baldwin relentlessly exposed the lies that Americans told themselves, right? Now, I just finished writing a piece on this amazing essay that Baldwin wrote in a volume that he co-authored or co-published with Richard Avenden entitled Nothing Personal. And Nothing Personal, to my mind, is an extraordinary piece of writing. And I wanna say a little bit about this really quickly. Right, and perhaps I think one of James Baldwin's most uh, complex essays, right? In a moment of profound transition in his life as a witness and within the compact space of four relatively brief sections, Baldwin lays bare in this essay, many of the central themes of his corpus. He writes about history and identity, death and loneliness. The reader gets a sense of the depth of his despair and his desperate hold onto the power of love in what is, by any measure, a loveless world, especially in a country like our own so obsessed with money. And in a sense, nothing personal sits at the crossroads of his work. The Fire Next Time, published in 1963, solidified his fame and status as one of America's most insightful writers about race and democracy, but the brutal reality of the American, of the black freedom struggle, the murder of Medgar Evers, for example, and the terror of Southern sheriffs forced him to confront again, the country's ongoing betrayal. What we're doing now in this moment. And Baldwin, like a conductor approaching a railroad switch, a railway switch, signals with this essay, the beginning of a shift in his tone. Darkness hovers over the writing. One feels his vulnerability on the page. Now, I must confess that I've rarely lingered here before, but it, it, you know, this moment sent me back to it. Can we begin again still? Can we begin again still? I've always read nothing personal in relation to Avendon's photographs, as if the words only offered an interpretation of what I was seeing. Baldwin's prose was my crutch because I don't think I'm very good at seeing such things. So I skipped the essay, uh, Nothing Personal in the Price of the Ticket. I preferred reading it alongside the images. But in doing so, I missed something essential, that Nothing Personal was, in some ways, an existential coda of the nation. And it led to, or an existential coda for the nation, and it led to a kind of fugitive thought in a time where one has to still moments to think. Baldwin wanted us, and this is what I'm trying to get to in my short remarks. Baldwin wanted us to confront the loveless character of our lives, the prison of our myths, and the illusion of what we take to be safety, 
Avenden's images themselves broke up the writing and fragmented the argument about who we are as a nation, and in doing so, somewhat obscured the claim about the perils of American adolescence. But I want, I was so focused on the images, I couldn't see the sophisticated stitching of Baldwin's plea. And my God, in the aftermath of Donald Trump's presidency, we need to hear that plea clearly in all of its complexity. You know, reading that essay at all of, over all of these years, I've never noticed the third sentence of the first section of Nothing Personal. Baldwin begins this section by laying bare the consequences of living in a society so overdetermined by consumerism, Dr. Day. He opens up with the image of channel surfing. I imagine him holding an old remote control, a recently lit cigarette in one hand and the other, clicking the remote over and over again. He describes commercials that promise Americans all sorts of material things that, that will make our lives meaningful, things that keep us forever young and trap us in our illusions of the wonderful life. It's like reading Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno about the modern condition and the manipulative nature of the culture industry. And much of this happens in one seemingly interminable sentence. With dashes and semicolons, Baldwin relentlessly describes what America puts on offer and how we might drown in it all. Here, ironically, I suppose, he echoes Walt Whitman's The Million Dead, too summed up, one long sentence about our dead as he accounts for the death of the American heart. The long sentence mimics the onslaught of never-ending commercials that affirm the fantasy of American strength and prowess, a fantasy that leaves those of us who bear the brunt of its nonsense here and abroad in a state of despair and wonder. Think about Toni Morrison's character, beloved, Stampede, who comes to mind asking the question, what are these people, my God, what are these people? This powerful nation cleaves to myths about itself to evade what Baldwin describes as its unspeakable loneliness. Here, the modern condition as evidenced in those ghastly commercials takes on a particular kind of resonance, especially in the Jim Crow South. White Americans within an iron cage are shackled to a mythical past that blocks them from confronting who they actually are. And this is a key insight for Baldwin, one he takes from the fire next time and rewrites for this particular essay. As he says, to be locked in the past means in effect that one has no past since one can never assess it or use it. And if one cannot use the past, one cannot function in the present. And so one can never be free. And he says, I take this to be the American situation in relief, the root of our unadmitted sorrow. So can we still begin again involves, can we confront what really is ailing us as a country? Baldwin says, he says, he says, he put it very clearly in that same essay. He says, we are afraid to reveal ourselves because we trust ourselves so little. Uh-oh. And in this labyrinth, the person is desperately trying not to find out what he really thinks. Baldwin goes on to say, therefore, the truth cannot be told even about one's attitudes. We live by lies, he says. And not only, for example, about race, but we live by the lie about our very natures. The lie has penetrated our most private moments and the most secret chambers of our hearts. 
the most secret chambers of our hearts. And nothing more sinister can happen to a people, he suggests. And when it happens, it means that people are caught in a, vac a kind of vacuum between their present and their past, romanticized, that is, the maligned past and the denied and dishonored present. It is a crisis of identity, he says. And in such a crisis, at such pressure, at such a pressure, it becomes absolutely indispensable to discover or invent the stranger, the barbarian who is responsible for our confusion and our pain. Once he is driven out, destroyed, then we can be at peace, he says. Those questions will be gone. Of course, those questions never go, but it has always seemed much easier to murder than to change. And this is really the choice with which we are confronted now, he writes. Baldwin in this essay says the country needs, excuse my language, this country needs its niggas. The country needs its Islamic terrorists and the illegal aliens, quote unquote, to hold together a fragile identity that always seems to be on the verge of falling apart. The dangers on this view lie without and not within, but Baldwin had already written in 1962 in an essay for the New York Times book review after saying that the loneliness of Das Passos wrote that Das Passos wrote about is now greater than ever, that the trouble is dip deeper than we wish to think, the trouble is in us. So if I'm reading nothing personal correctly, the country needs its strangers to resolve the sense of alienation that threatens to suffocate this place. In the end, the enemy and the evil without and the violence we exact upon the threat they present or upon them keeps us whole while the rot within corrupts everything. Can we still begin again? Can we begin again still? It requires a kind of honest confrontation with the loneliness, the unadmitted sorrow at the heart of who we are. Can we begin again still? It's gonna require looking the ghastly, our ghastly failure squarely in the face and understanding why do we need the N-words and why do we need the so-called terrorists and why do we need the so-called aliens? Baldwin exposes what motivates our nightly terrors. I'll shut up after this. There's an emptiness here in this place and no amount of material possession can fill it. There's an emptiness in us. And if we are to get at the root of white supremacy's hold on our lives, we will have to confront that emptiness directly without the security of our legends and myths. And for Baldwin, this is no abstract matter. And one sees this at the end of nothing personal. Baldwin reveals his own torment, torment the desperation felt in that 4 a.m. hour that leads to a version of the question that William James asked himself in 1895, is life worth living? And he finds that moment, he finds the answer to that question in love, in communion with others, in a fellowship with others, in finding one's relationship to the generation to come. Can we begin again still? It requires a kind of maturation, a kind of maturity, the end of innocence. Baldwin says that when one has been condemned to eternal youth, one experiences the corruption of the soul. That's like living forever in Never Never Land, staying in the perpetual state of being a lost boy, a lost girl. Maturation requires you to enter the fray, to take a risk in life, 
to understand one's fallenness, that you're already on your way to the tomb, right? In order to avoid that, to stay in eternal youth means a corruption of the soul, Paul says. If we're going to confront our ugliness, honestly, we got to grow up. We got to leave the childishness behind. Step outside of the swaddling clothes. So at the end of the day, hmm, I pray that uh, we all recognize that we've been birthed in the American fantasy of itself as an example of democracy achieved. We all have to recognize that. And that this fantasy has distorted and disfigured our moral sense because it requires that we lie to ourselves about what we've done and about the emptiness that's in us as Americans. And a lie that thrives on a kind of willful ignorance makes this place and it makes those who cleave to it monstrous. I believe it is our task to do exactly what Jimmy called for over the course of his life. It's the precondition for beginning again. And that is mount an unending attack on all that Americans believe themselves to hold sacred. It is to unmask the panic at the root, Dr. Ben. The election, the recent election came then at a time of moral reckoning. But I pray that we do not trade one fantasy for another. Oh, y'all didn't hear me. I pray that we do not trade one fantasy for another, that Trump's defeat will somehow confirm and affirm America's inherent goodness and put a grateful republic back to sleep. Presidential elections alone, no matter how momentous, do not settle the question of who we take ourselves to be. The answer to that question and the answer to the question, can we still begin, can we begin again still, emerges in what we do now and in the days ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Glove. Powerful. That was longer than 15 minutes, though. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Powerful reflections on um, uh, an essay that I did not know of Baldwin's um, and his reflections on at the heart, as you talk about, at the center of, of, of this problem is a kind mm -hmm. of loneliness, an identity crisis. And I'm sort of struck by um, your conversation over America being willing to abandon um, its myths, um, its legends, its idols, um, sort of reminded of uh, something that Charles Long said. He said um, that America does not have a hermeneutical problem. America is a hermeneutical problem. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, and, 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 I, and I think that Long's statement right there really captures right a, a, a lot that um, you have been discussing here in these initial reflections um, on these mythical paths that are subscribed to that then um, don't really, it doesn't allow the country in some ways um, to see that the very conditions for its survival and thriving actually involve deconstructing um, uh, itself, right? You talked about this loss of innocence. Um, and so in terms of reflections, I'm wanting to 
first, uh, and this is sort of a question for you, um, connect that then to what is going on on the political landscape, on the ground, right, uh, mm -hmm. on today. Um, I'm not going to assume that a lot of uh, people that are, are listening to our conversation have actually read your book, Begin Again. Read it as soon as you can. I want to say that to the virtual audience. But it's clear to me as I was reading your book that when, and it was very clear in your, in your initial reflections, that when you speak about beginning again, you're not speaking about a sort of return to something that has existed before, right? That this right. is not what you're, you're ref referring to. Instead, when you, speak, when you speak about beginning again, you are speaking about, uh, in your words, a, a wholesale reimagining, right? Mm -hmm. a, a revolutionary rethinking anew of who America is and what America can be. But I'm, I'm really struck by something that Biden said in his speech, and he was quoting Obama, uh, it was the, the night of the, the victory speech he gave once we found out that he was the winner. He says, uh, the average American doesn't want revolution. They don't want to tear down the system than to improve on what has already been established. Mm. So it, it's, it seems to me that your conversation about beginning again, this wholesale reimagining, and probably I, I just want to sort of note here in terms of Baldwin and the way that I've read Baldwin in the past, certainly in your book, you're, you're, you're lifting up Baldwin's sort of stringent radical critique of white supremacy and racism mm -hmm. in this nation um, that in some ways reveals and implicates America as guilty, not as innocent. But at the same time, there's a way in which Baldwin also has this stringent critique of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, uh, it, this advocacy of sort of a, a certain kind of socialism, I wouldn't call it a, a kind of doctrinaire, traditional socialism, but maybe like an indigenous socialism, um, where he is definitely offering an international counter-colonial critique, not only of the U.S., but also of all Western nations, right? So there's a way, mm -hmm. at least for Baldwin, that what's tied into white supremacy is this deeper sort of understanding of a sort of colonial imperial position that is driven by capitalist production. And, and so going back to, to, to Biden's um, comment, that sort of there's this tension here, right? between on the one hand, beginning again involves this sort of revolutionary praxis, something that we do see in Baldwin, sort of this intersectional, colonial, imperial, white supremacy articulates itself with these aspects and elements. Um, but on the other hand, uh, America being articulated as sort of ameliorative, as wanting to simply build on something. Right. That, right. that has come before. And I would imagine that for a number of radical activists, I mean, we've all heard these conversations, that this is precisely the critique of having a profound political distrust of both parties. You just said it. Let's not buy into another fantasy that now Biden is elected, we actually, you know, uh, feel as if we've defeated white supremacy or as if there is some uh, a, a major silver lining and a sort of linear pro progression forward. So I guess uh, my question to you would be, what do you make of this, of this tension, right? On the one hand, be between this, this vision, revolutionary vision of beginning again that we see in Baldwin's work, 
that you've noted in his essay, um, um, Nothing Personal, I believe I'm referring to it. Mm -hmm. But yet, even by political leaders, both left and right, this articulation of a kind of American identity that suggests something very different. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I think it's important for us to describe what we're hearing from Biden and from Obama last night, for example, on 60 Minutes. What we're hearing is the kind of uh, a, a, a particular version of, of an American exceptionalist narrative, right? There is a sense, you know, these are true believers in the American project as it, set, as it represents itself to itself. Um, and it would make sense to me that, that Biden in, that, in, in various moments would try to ventriloquize the, the, the American public, right? To throw his voice into theirs, to make it seem as if theirs, it's theirs. Because there's an investment in, in, in the way America currently is, even though many of them understand that it's not sustainable. So even as Obama was leaving office, he says this kind of wealth inequality isn't sustainable. Even Alan Greenspan said that this kind of wealth inequality isn't sustainable. But what we do know is that there's still a commitment to an economic system that presupposes uh, the need for disposable people. And, you know, Baldwin might not have been an ideologue in any strict sense, but, you know, he, he even invoked... Uh, uh, you know, the phrase from Bobby Seale in No Name in the Street, he says, maybe I'm committed to Yankee doodle socialism. I don't, I don't know. But what he's committed to is an economic system that confirms and affirms the sacrality of every human being, right? And, and so that means that you cannot have a system predicated upon, you know, people who are left in the shadows, who are disposable. So, one of the things we have to understand is that Trumpism is not the reflection or the result of the bad, simply the bad character of Donald Trump or bad actors in the Republican Party or loud racists. Trumpism is a reflection of a combination, as I mentioned in my comments, of racism or white supremacy more specifically, greed, and folks who are greedy don't have to be racist, they just wanna make money. And a kind of selfishness that comes out of an ideological and political, philosophy, political and economic philosophy that transforms you and I from fellows in community with each other to being self-interested persons in competition and rivalry with each other. And so that kind of political rationality, right, undermines any robust conception of the public good. So Trump is a reflection of the very policies that have animated the Democratic Party for over 30 years. So he's not just the reflection of the Republican Party, he's a reflection of the body politic. So some people, and I'll say this really quickly, some people believe that the only thing we need to do is go back to what was. But there was a sister interviewed in New York. She said, go back to what was. I was marching for Trayvon Martin before Trump. I was, they were killing, go back to what? So what are, they, what are, what are we trying to get back to? What constitutes normalcy? 
And remember what Dr. King said at the end in Montgomery at the end of the Selma March. He says, some people want us to go back to normal. Let me describe to you what normal was. And then he starts listing all of the violence, right? There's no going back. And so I, I, I end by saying that Biden thinks he can tinker around the edges, but there are gonna be some of us who are gonna be pushing him to do much more. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And while I see um, it is opening up and people are beginning to submit their questions, please continue to do so. Um, I, I was also struck in your brief remarks, uh, and I'm sort of paraphrasing your words here, that That's beginning again involves staying sort of connected to um, intergenerational action, right? Um, to intergenerational um, um, uh, awareness, what's going on uh, in, in the multiple generations that are already mm -hmm. sort of doing the work, that are thinking about what this country needs, especially what their communities need. And um, I, I'm struck that I, this is probably about two weeks ago, I was reading um, an essay that a black feminist June Jordan wrote um, mm. on children's literature. And mm. this is her and it's actually, the essay is reprinted in a book called Revolutionary Motherhood. And um, her statement, she says, children are the ways that we begin again over and over. Children are the ways that we begin again over and over. Um, and, and, and that really struck me because, I mean, you talk mm. about, you know, the, 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 the black freedom struggles, at least the, the, the social movements here, here in this country um, have always been populated, right, by young people by youth. So whether we're talking about the civil rights movement, young bodies on the line, whether we're talking about SNCC, even today, if we talk about the Black Lives Matters movement, dream defenders, and so forth, um, it's sort of at least June Jordan reminds one, I think, that if it is the case that our possibilities, our politics of hope involve a sort of intergenerational praxis, um, then it seems to me that sort of this vision of beginning again um, this revolutionary practice, this wholesale imagining, I'll stick with your words, this wholesale imagining, um, involves um, this kind of intergenerational solidarity, but it seems to me this is precisely part of the issue. And I'll say this because of course, we, this is Princeton Theological Seminary, specifically in relationship to many religious communities. Let's take the black church, for example, where there is a strong, at times, intergenerational divide, right? on how should we think about what our communities need, what kind of vision of flourishing should we proffer or commend and so forth. And so with that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, particularly because there's a lot of people uh, in our virtual audience, um, and I know that these persons are leading communities, whether it's through pastoring or other uh, non-Christian religious communities or their activists, how might we begin to think about this sort of intergenerational solidarity. If June Jordan is indeed right, that beginning again at the center of that is our children, our youth, that they hold the possibilities of remaking um, our worlds over and over, then how might we think about this question of intergenerational solidarity? Well, you know, I begin beginning, you know, I start the book, Begin Again, um, the first chapter at least, with Jimmy, uh, or Baldwin in, in an apartment 
at, at Howard University with many of the activists who had become members of SNCC, but they were members of NAG first, National Action Group. And it was, you know, Stokely Carmichael who would become Michael, you know, Kwame Ture and, and Michael Thelwell and Muriel Tillinghast and, and, and others. And, you know, that conversation lasted until the sun came up. And, and Jimmy says, you know, promise, you know, well, you gave it to your elder brother for the last words, but if you promise your elder brother that you will never believe what the world says about you, then I promise you that I'll never betray you. And Kwame Ture in his autobiography written with Michael Thelwell says he never did. And so Baldwin understood that the engine of change were these young folk. And he understood that piety is not just simply backward looking. Piety is not just simply Santiana's understanding of being, you know, an indebtedness to the sources of one's being. But piety is also a kind of care and love and nurturance to the future generation. Because those babies are a reflection of us. And if we fail them, right, it's on us. And so there's no guarantee, and this is really key, there's no necessary relationship rather between being young and being transformative. Because I keep telling people all the time, uh, the proud boys aren't baby boomers. Mm. Dylan Roof is not a baby boomer. The Boogaloo boys aren't baby boomers. So young folk can change the world, but there's no guarantee that they're gonna change it for good. So part of our role in this moment is to stand in relation, right relation with them, to provide the space for them to flourish, not the space to constrain and limit, because that's not what Jimmy did. And that's not what we aspire to do, right? But to give to keep tending to the soil such they can grow and mature, right? And so part of this inter intergenerational solidarity in, to my mind involves, right, me, us being willing to shut up and listen, right? To offer uh, 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 our answers when asked, right? And to, offer guidance and care with care and love, right? As opposed to wait your turn. You know how some of these preachers are, they don't wanna get out of a pulpit till somebody have to care them out in a stretcher, you know, right? What does it mean to kind of think about uh, Miss Baker, Ella Baker's approach to kind of leadership model, right? Creating the conditions under which people can become the leaders they've been looking for, right? That's the kind of love because there's no guarantee, there's no necessary relationship between the fact that you're young and freedom. And so don't just posit your youthfulness as the condition for, transform, for transformation, no. But Baldwin says at the end of No Name in the Street, our task is that we got to be better midwives. We have to be better midwives. Um, so that's how I would respond to that question. Excellent. Now we have some uh, from our virtual audience who are extremely excited to be a part of this conversation. Um, so I'll, I'll begin with, I think, Wesley Rowell. And Wesley says, the phrase, we would rather murder than change, 
is speaking loud and clear today. We have been in the murder phase for a long time. And I'm, I'm, presuming, I'm presuming this has to do with how marginalized communities um, have been treated systematically, right? Um, no, no matter which party we're talking about, I think that's what's America in general. What is it going to take for us to get to change? And this person is, is, is not hopeful that it actually will be Biden or Trump for that matter. But what it seems the, the question is, what is it going to take for us to get to change? And of course, you've already named some of those conditions, but. You know, it's hard. Let me just say up front that I don't want to pretend that I have all the answers, right? I don't. I'm out here struggling just like everybody else, right? So let's be very clear about that. And, you know, we want to disrupt this kind of standard um, uh, practice or performance that, you know, the person who has a certain expertise presumes that she can answer everything with some level of cert certitude. I don't want to suggest that. So I'm thinking and working hard, just like you are around these issues. I think what can bring us, you know, there are conjunctural moments as Stuart Hall talked about them. Are these moments of crises that also present moments of, of, of potential impossibility. Um, neoliberalism, however we might want to describe it, whether you want to call it Reaganism, Thatcherism, however we want to describe it, this political and economic ideology has revealed itself to be bankrupt. Its contradictions are in full view. And those con because those contradictions are in full view, the way of life that has been built upon its assumptions, it, it's collapsing in front of us. So this idea of, of an elite that's just engaged in extraction, right? That, that leave everyday ordinary workers, right? Barely able to keep their noses above water. An evisceration of the public good, right? By rendering selfish pursuit of, of interest as the ultimate penultimate value, right? It has produced a way of life that is not only uh, socially and morally anemic, but is materially, you know, anemic, right? That it has it has literally eroded the quality of life of people around the globe. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is to say that if Alan Greenspan is telling you that this kind of wealth inequality is unsustainable. They're going to try to tinker with capitalism in order to make it reasonable. But the contradictions are clear. You combine that with the pressures of these demographic shifts, right? And I want to just be very clear. We fell for the okie doke in 2008. We're not going to fall for it in 2020. So we were excited about the symbolic significance of a Black president. We're excited about the symbolic significance of a Black woman president. But we fell for the okie doke as if that was all that was needed and required. That's not gonna happen this time. So I think the demographic shifts, the political awakening alongside the contradictions make this a conjunctural moment that actually makes it a moment of profound possibility. I don't know how long it's gonna last, but I do know those of us who, are, who have the means and the will should stand in the breach. We should put our elbows out to try to keep this window open as long as possible. We have to mobilize and organize. So how might change happen in this? It's gonna happen from below 
in response to these contradictions that I've just laid out, as black and brown people and poor people uh, across the board in solidarity demand for a different kind of moral and social contract that will evidence itself in a different set of political arrangements. That's long-winded, it's an abstraction, but, but I think it makes sense. I'm, that's what I'm banking my all on. And we have uh, Cambria who uh, has a question. She says, uh, Cambria, uh, da, 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 sorry, I lost. Okay, there we go. I share your critique of Biden and Obama's vision of American exceptionalism, a vision that only tinkers around the edges rather than questioning the structure itself. At the same time, many would argue that much of our pain at the current moment comes from our distrust of each other. So I think that this speaks to sort of the existential conditions mm -hmm. that Baldwin is talking about in the essay that you laid out. Do you think distrust is an issue we have to address today or not? If so, how can we foster trust um, first, but then also trust in revolutionary modes? You know, trust is, is often evidenced in those moments of vulnerability, you know? those moments where we're willing to risk uh, ourselves on behalf of another. So I think there's general distrust of, so there's distrust on a number of different levels and we wanna be clear about this. So there's general distrust of government. They failed. They, they're only out for the rich. They have no concern outside of the political class and, and the wealthy. Uh, and we see those numbers have been just ticking up with at each decade, they've just been increasing. So we're at an all time low in terms of the general distrust trust of the American public of government, which makes democracy um, questionable, right? Because there's a sense in which trust is presupposed as a background condition for deliberation. If I don't think you're being, I think, if I think you're engaging me in bad faith, right? Then I don't trust what's coming out of your mouth. If we're in a post-truth moment, where folk can just lie as they, as they are in pursuit of power. You can just be blatantly hypocritical, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham. You just tell me whatever you think I wanna hear in that moment and do whatever the hell you wanna do. Then bad faith you know, saturates the body politic and it becomes very difficult to trust each other to do what, what the demos is supposed to do. Now, how does one respond to that reality? Well, you know, we do it in movement. We do it in organizing where we risk ourselves, where we prove that some, where, where folks can see that we're trustworthy, right? That trust is earned, right? This is what Bob Moses told me that they had to do in the Delta of Mississippi. They had to earn their togetherness. They just couldn't presuppose it. So what does it mean to earn trust in this moment? It involves a kind of willingness, at least to my mind, of working hard for a different kind of moral and social contract. And let me say this really quickly because I know we got more questions here. America is broken. Our way of life is broken. You know, once, once you know, you can't, the easy oven, it's not just about changing the bulb. I just, I just dated myself, right? You just can't change the bulb to bake your cakes. You know, you got to do something, it's broken. So part of what that means, and it's broken. Well, let me say this. It's broken because the social contract that undergirded it has been thrown in the trash bin. 
the very agreement that that industry made with workers, they don't care about that no more. The very idea of the social safety net, that thrown out the window. It's just doggy. It's almost like we're in a state of nature in this joint, right? Except that folk got some advantages and some folk don't. So we need a new moral and social contract as, as a basis for articulating our shared values, our sense of a fellow feeling, our connection to each other. And then trust will emerge as we fight for it together. It just can't be positive. We have to fight for it in movement. That's what I think. Wow. Uh, and I think that that's a, sort of an appropriate sentence to end on based on the next question that we have to fight for our trust um, um, uh, in mm -hmm. order to, to live well together. Um, and Lucas asked, um, what is the importance? What is the importance um, bridging the political? Um, so, yeah. what's the importance uh, to bridging the political polarization in the beginning again? And I think I'm going to recast the question. But I'm just going to read Lucas's question out. And then, how do we make sense of such acute political differences, especially in the religious? Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about this question, if you just don't mind me, uh, about this question is you have some that, and, and especially this, this you'll hear more within religious communities with language, not only of justice, but of reconciliation, right? This is a, 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 a sort of a, a foregrounding word um, that a part of any vision of beginning again, starting over involves creating bridges. And I mean, you've, you've sort of already addressed that. And that is we have to fight for this trust. This trust is not given. Uh, it's not something through rhetoric that we can feel our way into. There has to be blood, sweat, and tears in people reckoning with their own interests and coming into solidarity with uh, flourishing um, um, and dealing really with the loss of innocence uh, related to America. But then how do we make sense of such acute political differences, um, especially in, in the religious arena? And it strikes me, of course, that right now, religious communities, particularly Christian communities are at, at the center, right? So particularly talk about white, evan white evangelicalism at the center of, of, of much of these acute political uh, differences. Some would say, well, um, you know, in some ways uh, there's an exacerbation of mm -hmm. division. My argument would be that the division has always been there in, in, in some ways. It's, it's been that you look historically at the country. If you know history, then you know that, right? But there's mm -hmm. a way in which we have a leader that has leveraged and played off of those differences in very covert, uh, overt rather ways. So, so in, in terms of, of to Lucas's question, but if I can broaden the question a bit, um, first, how do you make sense of such political, acute political differences when religion is the driver? So in this case, religion's role is that it actually complicates the vision of beginning again. Um, but at the same time, as represented in the virtual community, there are religious communities, religious leaders, Christian and non-Christian as well, that see, uh, want to participate, see a productive role in this vision of beginning again. So how do we make sense of the role of religious communities in light of these political differences that both impede 
and can pop can can make possible this vision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard. I think everybody needs to read uh, Robert P. Jones's wonderful book, Why Too Long, mm -hmm. and what and and really go to PRRI and really look at the latest data. I mean, he's been looking at the exit poll data and other data around white evangelical behavior in this past election. And what we see is that race is driving it, mm -hmm. right? That the idolatry at the heart of American white, at the heart of American Christendom still obtains. You know, Douglas said, you know, the slave auction block was right next to the church steeple. And you know he's a you know a, a you know faithful AMEZ, but you know you know what he's trying to suggest here, right? That 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 deep hypocrisy that's at the heart of white Christianity, so much so that black Christianity comes into existence to 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 rebuke that idolatry in some ways. So look, it's very clear to me that hyperpartisanship in this country maps onto racial divisions. These these political identities are actually are coterminous with racial identities. And as the demographic shifts have placed pressures on our self-conception as a nation, it has exacerbated those differences, right? In very, in very clear ways. Um, and Obama's presidency was the kind of accelerant. And then Donald Trump, to, to use his word against him, and then Donald Trump, right, leveraged all of the resentment to ascend. Right, as the Democratic Party doubled down on the third way, um, you know, with uh, nominating Hillary Clinton in some ways. So, how do we? So, the thing that I'm, I'm. So, to get at a, a portion of the question, um, is that you don't bridge that by 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 suddenly ignoring all the evidence. Right, I'm not going to trust Mitch McConnell. Suddenly. I'm not going to suddenly believe that the 71 million plus who voted for him after the evidence of the last four years are engaging me in bad faith. I mean, in good faith. Why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense. That's not reasonable. Why would suddenly everybody want to have prayer circle around Paula White? Now, that doesn't mean you can't send up a prayer for her. I'm praying for the sister. She needs to come on. And understand, but what 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 do we do with what she has been doing over the last four years in the name, right, of of a tradition that I or you may identify with? How do we hold her accountable, forgivingly and lovingly? But how do we hold her accountable? So part of the work that we have to do, I think is to stand on our square when it comes to the vision of the world that we are willing to risk our lives for and understand that that may involve, right, um, building solidarities among unsuspecting groups, but that will be predicated upon earned trust, earned forgiveness, right, a shared value, not just you know for the sake of forgiveness, for the sake of forgiveness. The last time that happened for us, for Black folk, you know that one that that powerful line in C. Van Woodward's "Strange Career of Jim Crow." Black folk gained their rights through a falling out among white folks. I'm paraphrasing. Then they lost their rights when they reconciled. Huh? So reconciliation has to happen after we tell the truth. 
as Brian Stevenson says, truth and reconciliation is sequential. And so truth, tell the truth about why, what white evangelicals have done and are doing. Tell the truth about what the majority of white Americans are doing. Tell the truth about what the Democratic Party has done and seems to want to do again. Tell the truth and then that will be, begin to open the door for a different way of being together. But just don't posit forgiveness because you're going to get done in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did I answer the question or did I turn turn it into something else? No, 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 no. You 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 absolutely this is a, a flow of, of conversation. Um I and, and speaking of you know telling the truth, uh Tracy Bartholomew, um, this mm -hmm. is sort of a more explicitly sort of uh, theological um question. Um as a Lutheran, I believe there are two foundational ideas that should help our church members grasp this idea of dismantling the lie uh, to your earlier remarks, Dr. Galad, we tell ourselves about America, right? So the first foundation idea she uh, um, tells um, her church members, our lives as Christians are lives of daily repentance. And second, like that. the theology of the cross, which calls a thing a thing, that is tells the truth of evil. So I wonder why we have such a hard time applying these theological truths in a political way. And I have my thoughts, so I definitely want to converse with you on this question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to hear your thoughts, you know. I do. Um, why do we have such a hard time? Uh, people like to live their faith in the abstract, you know? Uh, because to, in some ways, um, Sister Tracy, in some ways to, to live those commitments, to enact them in our politics is to risk oneself, right? Is to, is to risk a kind of misfittedness with the world as it is. Um, and so um, the state of repentance holds back arrogance, it holds back self-interest, it, it, it presupposes a kind of self-reflexivity. Um, when in fact, uh, we live in a world that rewards everything that is the opposite of that. And then what does it mean to tell the truth? Oh my God, we're truth dodging civilization. Because to tell the truth is to confront that emptiness, to, the, to, to confront the loveliness, lovelessness mm -hmm. that is rampant in our world. So um, now I wanna hear what uh, Professor Day has to say. And I do apologize for the ringing phone in my background. I'm in my office and I have no clue who will be calling me right now <laughs> in the afternoon. So I apologize for that to the audience. Um, you know, if, if there's one thing, uh, two scholars uh, that I think would be really helpful for this question, it would be James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Lynching tree. Mm -hmm. And then second book would be Willie Jennings' book, um, The Christian Imagination. Um, and, you know, what I think, um, the way they articulate sort of to this question, why is it so hard uh, in applying these theological truths in political ways, and even to the slavery audit <laughs> uh, that Princeton Theological Seminary just finished doing about a year ago, is sort of this understanding that whenever we're talking about Christianity in America, 
we're already talking about the ways in which Christianity is read through the categories of whiteness, right? From, so, so the idea that, you know, specifically uh, within white communities, but I would, I would say the internalization of white theology within say black churches is alive and well, right? So I mean, the question of theology more broadly and why is it that people can apply these theological truths in political ways is not necessarily just, you know, um, um, specific to white communities, uh, religious communities. But um, I think what these texts that I just named teach me and part of what we were having a discussion about in the slavery audit is that part of a radical critique of white supremacy is the critique of the ways in which American Christianity has been understood, mm -hmm. has been structured through its doctrine, for example. So, you know, as Cone talks about the theology of the cross, his major critique is that the cross uh, within, within doctrine itself, within the history of, of the West and within the United States more specifically, uh, is that in some ways it is not contextualized within this broader sort of conversation of imperialism, of deep subjugation that Jesus, who is a Jew, a Palestinian Jew at the time, is contending with a Roman imperial order and religious institutions that are sort of in the bed with an imperial order. Um, so, so that in some ways, and of course in, in Cone's book, he's connecting it to American, white American Christianity uh, 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 throughout our, our particular history. Um, and why, in, in some ways, we need to rethink the very theological truths that, in this, in this case, doctor, doctrinal ideas and so forth, that we, uh, that we speak about, that we profess, right? So, so I think on one level, it's just not, I guess to my point, I'm going in, in sort of a roundabout way. <laughs> my point is that it's just not that people are having a hard time applying theological truths in mm. political ways. The problem tends to be the theological truths, right? It, it's 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 the very it's it's the very constitution of such truths that are so deeply deeply structured in whiteness. Wow. Um, and, and I think that and I think that if if particularly white communities, I mean, um, uh, I believe uh, Jennifer Harvey's book "Dear White Christians" is another book to read on reparations where she really delves into this very important point of white communities needing to rethink their own basic theological truths, which can be complicit, even if unwittingly, with white supremacy, right? And with other forms uh, of oppression. So I, so I think on the one hand, it is about, you know, how, you know, people that are say reading the gospels and, and, and clearly they see certain things in the gospels that are oriented towards the least of these and they don't want to do that because of their own interests. But 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 part of what I think Cone and Jennings and other people are saying is that when people turn and look at the gospels, they already have categories that they've been socialized into, which prevents precisely that kind of interpretation, right, of Jesus. That mm -hmm. then prevents them from, um, from living into a kind of theological truth that orients itself towards this vision of beginning sure. and absolutely i'm sorry i broke the rules this is this is your time to converse no with the i'm that, that that i learned a lot <laughs> but it's, well it's such a, an important question um shalom uh, has a question here in baldwin's essay the discovery of what it means to be american american he says 
The time has come, God knows, for us to examine ourselves. But we can only do this if we are willing to free ourselves of the myth of America and try to find out what is really happening here. My question is this, how critical is it for us Americans to come to understand, be transparent, and sincerely engage what is really happening here in our country? Oh, oh, it's at the heart of the matter. It's at the heart of the matter. And you know, to, 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 to strip away the illusions, to confront you know, an economic system that, that is devastating working people, to uh, strip away the illusions that obscure how criminal justice system, the repressive state apparatus, what is it doing uh, to black and brown people and to poor people, to strip away this idea that America is an example of democracy achieved so that we can see the carnage around the globe done in our name, done by us. All of this, Baldwin says the trouble is deeper than we think because the trouble is in us. And that we cannot build a, true, a truly genuine community until we confront our ghastly failures, right? And that means we got to tell ourselves the truth about who we are. This is why it's so important, you know, look, Baldwin goes to Second Revelations 5, to do one's first works over. I think that's right, right? And when he makes that move, right? This, when he starts saying, begin again, he makes that move. And what does he mean, right? He's not trying to go back to some pristine beginning. No, 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 no. This is not some, you know, long nostalgia for Eden. That's not what he's looking for, especially given Baldwin's understanding of desire. Why would we want to go back to Eden? Lord have mercy. But the whole point is, is, is this, that if we're going to do our first work sober, I got to figure out why I made certain kinds of choices that put me down this path as opposed to the other. If I'm going to be a better daddy, if I'm going to be a better father to my son, I got to understand how and why I'm responding to what my daddy did to me and what his daddy did to him. To do one's first works over is to go back and interrogate those choices that sent us this way as opposed to that, right? And so part of what Baldwin is saying, why, what does it mean for us to imagine ourselves in this way? Because America's original sin is not slavery. America's original sin is not the genocide of the native peoples. America's, general, America's original sin is the price of the ticket. And what is that? that all of these folk came from Europe and they became white and whiteness became the justification for the genocide of native peoples. Whiteness became the justification for the enslavement of folks. So the original sin isn't the consequence or the effects, it's the decision to believe that one is valued more than another. We need to go back and interrogate what drove that decision. As Baldwin says, I've never been the N-word. The question is, why did you need the N-word in the first place? And until you figure that out, I'm going to give it back to you. Who's the real N-word in this, in this story? Right? So this is, this is part of uh, yeah. that, 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 um, that hard work, right? Of how do we truly begin again to, to leave behind the swaddling clothing and step into a kind of maturation that allows us to imagine ourselves being together differently. Yeah, yeah. 
next question is from Candace, and um, this is a, all the questions are quite interesting, but I'm pretty excited about this question um, to get your thoughts. Um, Candace says, I assume a prerequisite to one beginning again still in America is one first choosing to remain in America. What would you say to those people, especially black people, who are seriously considering whether they should remain here to negotiate a new contract or become expats instead? And I think that this question is really interesting, Dr. Glaude, uh, uh, you know, in conversation with Baldwin's life. Yeah. <laughs> it's precisely what Baldwin Wright is experiencing prior to coming, as in, in his words, prior to coming back to the United States, feeling a call to come back to participate in, 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 in the freedom struggle, the civil rights movement. But in some ways, prior to that, Baldwin sort of articulates that it's precisely him being able to, to be in touch with his humanity by leaving America. Um, so yeah. what are your thoughts there? So, you know, the first thing is that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't diminish the fraught decision. You know, I wouldn't diminish the, the consideration at all. Right? I mean, we have a long tradition in, in, in Amer African-American political life that um, black folk can't flourish here. That the state is organized in such a way that it's impossible for us to flourish here. And that tradition uh, often gets read in a kind of black, as a kind of black nationalist tradition, but there's, we're constantly looking for an elsewhere, whether it's Liberia, whether it's Central America, whether it's the continent more broadly, whether it's the Caribbean, whether it's the Southern states, looking for an elsewhere because we realize that the state um, uh, will not accord us equal standing in this place. So that, I understand that. But you know, Baldwin wrote, and nobody knows my name. You know, I pulled it off the shelf to prove everybody that the books are real. In America, the color of my skin had stood between myself and me. In Europe, that barrier was down. Nothing is more desirable than to be released from an affliction, but nothing is more frightening than to be divested of a crutch. It turned out that the question of who I was was not solved because I had removed myself from the social forces which menaced me. Anyway, those forces, these forces had become interior and I had dragged them across the ocean with me. The question of who I was had at last become a personal question and the answer was to be found in me. So you can leave. You can go, but that, that, that grappling, that struggle with what's in here is gonna go with you. And so Baldwin was, he called himself a transatlantic commuter. So he didn't see himself as an expat. He didn't see himself as an exile. He was always engaged in reflecting on this place and what it put in him. So, you know, sometimes we need an elsewhere. I appreciate that question, Candace, it's deep. But if you're gonna go someplace else, you ain't leaving behind the mess that has been deposited in you. Mm. That's gonna go with you. And remember how I began my comments that, the, that, that this issue is in the interior. Baldwin believes that the unexamined life is not worth living, that the world as it is, is a reflection of the messiness of the world as it is, is a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives. So I couldn't write a sentence, Dr. Day, 
and begin again until I had to grapple with the fact that I'm a wounded little boy. I had to grapple with me and my daddy before I could get a sentence on the page to dance. It was a precondition. So part of what I think is important to note that you can't run away from it. Right? You might get outside, you know, you might get outside of the daily assault, but what's going on in here is gonna travel with you at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and we have another question. Maybe this will be the last question for the virtual audience. And then I'll have a question to close us out on hope because we definitely want people, uh, at least this is sort of my ethical commitment um, to walk away with hope, but precisely what kind of hope that is, uh, mm. is, is a question to ask. But um, uh, Jenny McLean, um, sorry here. Um, hmm. Ah, okay. Um, so I take it Jenny's question is um, black women are described as the, have recently been described as the backbone of democracy. Much in the same way that black women are described as the backbone of the black church. That statement has its, both its possibilities and limitations. Uh, I also, I also understand through my readings that Baldwin was deeply impacted and shaped by black women, mm -hmm. artists, musicians, activists. In terms of your vision of Begin Again, how do we finally engage, how should we finally engage black women's voices within this country and within our communities in ways that don't come at a cost to black women? Wow, you know, it's a great question. You get engaged them fully and unapologetically in all of its complexity, right? Let's, let's just be clear. I said in all of its complexity, there's no necessary relationship between the fact of being a black woman and being committed to a just vision of the world. See, that's hard for us to believe. Y'all, some folks are gonna get tested over the next four years. When the policies start rolling down and those policies aren't as beneficial as we might, as we might wanted them, wanted them to be or want them to be, we're gonna have to deal with the challenge of representation and the substance of policy. So, so, so part of what Baldwin is trying to do, whether in, in male prisons or whether in his essay on freaks is he's trying to, in some ways, deconstruct these categories that imprison us, right? Categories of, of gender and sex, categories of, of race and the like, so that we can see the fullness of the human being right in front of us, not in terms of some kind of naive universalism, right? But the, you know, the funkiness of the person, right? The beauty and, and depth of the human being right in front of us. So how do we do that in the context of, of our communities, in the context of this country, we have to engage in an all out, unrelenting assault on patriarchy, on misogyny, on misogynoir. We have to engage in an unrelenting critique, right, of, of those practices and that ideology at every turn. And, in, and instead of engaging, let me say it this way, and not to engage in signal virtue, you know, virtue signaling, to interrogate 
that ugliness in you, in me, right? To engage in the way and ways in which patriarchy shapes how I see the world, right? And how I function to deconstruct the way in which desire has been overdetermined by certain gendered norms and, and the like, right? To kind of break free from, from, from these shackles in order to imagine ourselves anew. And in this sense, I'm thinking about Sister Hortense Spillers, right? To, to, take, to take seriously the history of, of, of our experience and how it ungenders, not to, to, to embrace ourselves as monstrous, but to embrace the consequence of the ungendering as a condition for the possibility for a new way of being in the world, if that makes sense. So, so to engage in this unrelenting critique, right? But at the same time, not romanticize. Because let me tell you something, if black women are the backbone of a democratic party that is committed to a neoliberal political economic philosophy, then those black women who are committed to it need to be the objects of serious and sustained critique because they are becoming complicit in the devastation of everyday ordinary people. And we need to understand that in all of its detail. And so we're coming to a conclusion, but certainly- I got more getting in trouble for that one. <laughs> I wanted to ask a final question on hope. It's a question on hope. Mm. Um, it seems to me that throughout our discussion, as well as, you know, at least the people that I know, um, whether it's my colleagues here at Princeton Seminary or my family members in Springfield, Illinois, that um, the idea of hope or the practice of hope for folks looks less like a radical hope and more of a cautious hope. But I'm also intrigued by what is sitting in your bio. Um, where um, there's a line in there that says, uh, I don't know why this stuck on, in my brain, but it says in there, out of the whole bio, this is the thing that I came out with, um, that uh, sort of W.E.B. Du Bois says, which you resonate with, um, not um, hopeless, but a bit unhopeful. Yeah. Um, so so I'm, I'm wondering as we leave this virtual conversation, um, in terms of the, of, the, of the question of hope. If, you know, ho hope is what drives us, right? It's what um, motivates us. It's what allows us to think about otherwise futures beyond what, what we have, what exists, the status quo. Um, and so I'm wondering then if, if not a radical hope, but maybe this is a radical hope, which you'll explain in a moment, what kind of work does um, this sort of Du Boisian hope, maybe I could say, that you're articulating, which is, again, for the audience, not hopeless, but a little bit unhopeful. Damn, hope not hopeless, but unhopeful. He, you know, he, he utters that phrase in the context of his uh, chapter of the passing of the firstborn, which is an elegy that doesn't provide, you know, comfort. It's a parody of an elegy. He's dealing with the fact that he's had to put his baby in the grave. It's a blues-soaked hope. It's a hope that doesn't escape the reality of living, but stares it squarely in the face. And Baldwin puts it this way. An Ebony, a, a reporter from Ebony Magazine makes his way to Istanbul in 1970. Jimmy has just tried to commit suicide a year earlier. 
after King's assassination and after another love affair has collapsed and he feels himself to be loveless. And he's at a party and the guy turns to him and he says, well, what about hope? And Baldwin gives him that Baldwin smile and he says, hope is invented every day. Now, what is that? How do you get up in the morning? How do you find the resources given what life has hit you with the day before to wake up and swing your legs around and touch the floor? So hope is invented every day. And in that moment, Baldwin is trying to talk about the resources we have to find to muster the energy to stand upright because that four o'clock hour, in the four o'clock hour, we almost chose to opt out. Right? But then the daylight comes and then we decide that another day is here, we're gonna try it again. And so it's this, it's this thing, right? I came across this line and, and nobody knows my name. I'm gonna read it, I'm sorry. I know we got, I got five minutes. Since, since Martin's death in Memphis and that tremendous day in Atlanta, something has altered in me. Something has gone away. Perhaps even more than the death itself, the man of his death has forced me into a judgment concerning human life and human beings, which I've always been reluctant to make. Incontestably, alas, most people are not in action worth very much. And yet every human being is an unprecedented miracle. One treats them as the miracles they are while trying to protect oneself against the disasters they've become. So what is Baldwin saying there? Human beings are both disasters and miracles. We have to protect ourselves from the disasters of what we've become. But if we show up, if we show up, oh, there's a chance for a miracle. If we show up, there's the possibility for a miracle, right? So hope is invented every day. I'm gonna swing my feet and touch this floor. I'm gonna get myself about this bed. I may not know what's coming, Preach. But, but if I step out this door, there's a chance that there's a miracle coming my way. And that miracle's actually evidenced in me. So that's where, that's, that's where the hope is. So the, I, my, un, my unending hope is in the capacities of everyday ordinary human beings to transform the world. Because as Tony says, in a Nobel lecture, it's in our hands. It ain't in nobody else. Uh, so swing your feet around and let them touch the floor. Amen. <laughs> that all I can say is amen. <laughs> Dr. Gloss, thank you so much for being with us here at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I do hope that this conversation ignited for the audience perhaps more questions than answers as we all collectively seek together within our communities um, this hope that you talk about in beginning again. So thank you, Dr. Glaude, and everyone, good evening. Have a, a wonderful uh, night. And be safe. Everybody stay safe now. That's Take right. care. Thank you, Dr. Bye -bye. Glaude.